Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling, as always, is my friend and hopefully not radioactive co-host, Adam. I hope not, but yes, thank you. I'm excited to be here. This show is, is absolutely thrilling. I am totally into it right now. Good. Me too. Yeah. Depressed, but I'm into it. Yeah, I mean, if you detach from it and just kind of watch it from sort of as like a, almost like a history lesson, it's fascinating. Yes. I'm learning a lot. Yeah. I did not know, you know, as we said, we were eight-ish when this event occurred, and uh, this is almost all new information for me as a viewer, which makes it even more fascinating. And I think the fact that it's real, it's like you can't make this up. You know, I, I think if you were to make a fictional movie about a... Uh, a nuclear disaster it couldn't be as thrilling as this is because it actually happened right and i think that's what adds to what makes it compelling is that we're watching characters on a screen that were doing the things that actually happened back in 1986 and so when we hear someone like legasov talking about something we can assume that he said these things or that they were coming from a place of truth that even if it wasn't the exact words, the ideas, the explanations, those types of things, it's as if we're getting a peek into this world that we wouldn't have gotten otherwise. In fact, there's an interesting scene in the show or in the episode where Peter Jennings comes on and we're getting right. what we would have gotten as like, that's our 100% coverage or 90% coverage. It's a little peek on, oh, what's the rest of the world? What are the Americans saying about right. this? Incidentally, he pronounces it Chernobyl instead of Chernobyl, yeah. which I thought was interesting. <laughs> yeah. And then he says radiation instead of radiation. It was the mid 80s. You know, he spoke differently back then. <laughs> yeah. Well, everything was rad. So I guess it's radiation. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> but you make a good point, though, that that was what we as American citizens knew about this event at that point in time. So and so very little in terms of what we actually knew. And now we're we're seeing dramatized what really occurred. It just makes you realize when we watch the nightly news now, we just got a little headline about something happening anywhere. How much are we not getting? We're only getting like the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's really happening. It may not even be accurate. It may be only partially true. So this really does tell us a lot about kind of how information is is released and disseminated to the masses, not just in Russia, yeah. but all over the world. Yeah. And this idea of how you disseminate information, how much information you disseminate, what way you do is a central part of this episode, as it is, I think, with the first two and maybe just yeah. with the miniseries. I mean, we discussed some of the major themes that are going to continue to play a part, but how you handle information how you right. get to what do you say to the to the people that mm -hmm. are being affected by it and this particular episode wrestled with that a little bit with Legasov where he's in a bar he's talking to some patrons and he's drinking some vodka I'm assuming and they ask him hey you know is everything okay essentially I don't remember the exact quote but he essentially says yeah everything's fine or yeah there's nothing to be worried about essentially yeah, yeah. They're asking, should we be worried? And he's like, no, 
Nothing yeah. to worry about. And it's at that point that I think he feels culpable. In fact, I was watching, there were some special features after the episode, like an inside look. And he talks mm. about that scene where it's at that point, he's not a bystander. He's not an observer. He's not the hero trying to figure it out. Yes, he is partly. But the moment that he tells those people everything's okay, or at least doesn't give them the truth, he is now part of the misinformation campaign that the Soviet Union as a whole, or at least this community of government officials, is trying to trying to do. And right. I think that that's hard because I don't know what I would do in that situation. I don't know if feeding them information that I don't have 100% clarity on would be beneficial, even if it's the truth. Like what I know is that it could be this. That's difficult because you don't want to put people in a panic. I don't know what I would do because there's a part of me that says people need to know the truth, but there's a part of me that says they don't need to know the truth at that point. Maybe they don't right, need to be panicked right. because why would you put them in a position where they're going to panic maybe for no reason or at the very least when you don't have some kind of solution to the problem, I think is more right. of what I'm, I'm leaning into. I agree. I think there's this sort of dilemma where we all want our elected officials, our governments, our militaries to tell us the truth. Like, what's the truth? Give us the truth. But until you as an individual is in a position where you have that burden of having sensitive information about something, I don't think any of us can really answer if we would tell the public or not, or if we would suddenly realize, wow, I, I can't tell anyone this because if I do, it will be that much worse for whatever reason. We can't put ourselves in this case, into his, his situation in that bar. like He probably realizes that he was the one that all he wanted was to tell the truth and get the information out of what's really happening. But all of a sudden, now he's part of it. And I think every government, small and large, has to deal with this at some point in time, has to deal with this kind of idea of what do we tell? What do we hold back? Not necessarily lying, but just sort of not giving all the information intentionally to the people. And right. yeah, what would happen if he said, oh, yeah, you, we're all going to die in five years because you've been exposed more than you need to be. You're going to die in five years or less from what you've already been exposed. If he said that to them, what would happen? I mean, there would be chaos. There would be people running in the streets. There would be, probably be looting and, and other issues going on that would make it far worse. So it's like a no-win situation. I look at this episode and it's very different from the first one in terms of how it feels, where the first mm -hmm. one definitely feels sort of docudrama, documentary. We're getting the event. Right. We're getting sort of introduction to all the people. This one definitely feels like a television episode where we're honing in on characters. We're honing in on Legasov and Sherbina. They are sort of paired up in this episode. Right. And they're the ones we kind of anchor into for the most part. Yeah, we kind of follow them. It's sort of like them and also the female scientist played by uh, Emily Watson. I think those are kind of the two parallel characters that we sort of follow. And then they, of course, intersect towards the end. Right. They help us sort of understand two perspectives, the military, communal, political perspective and the scientific perspective. And I think right. she represents the scientific side more than anything else. Yes, she mm -hmm. and the guests, I think, are on the same team. They both understand the science behind it. And what I understand, she's a composite character. So she's not an actual 
person, but actually a composite of all the like scientists. Three people, that, right? I think. Uh, well, more than women. that, I think it was. Yeah, that, it was. Yeah, it was a handful of folks that were the scientists during this whole event who were trying to figure out what went wrong, how to clean it up, and really kind of get to the bottom of the issue. So, being able to watch them intersect and interact really, really got me connected to what would otherwise be a non-action oriented episode. The first one was action heavy, you know, the explosion and lots of fires and just like, oh my gosh, people are burning and what's going to happen? Are we going to have any alive people in the second episode? (laughs) Because it's not, it's, it doesn't seem that way, but the episode opens up in a really cool way where you have this Russian dialogue or Russian announcement. This is what I find really interesting, Adam, is there was a deliberate decision to not have Russian speak with the characters or Russian accents. But when it comes to, for instance, like the evacuation announcement, it's all Russian. There's no subtitles. And it allows us to focus in on the reactions of the people. So we actually are like, even though we can't understand what's being said, we see the panic, we see the confusion, and then we see the evacuation. And it just breaks Mm -hmm. my heart because I know that these people are not coming back. These people think they're leaving for a few days, but I think there's an intentionality to being able to, to not having subtitles because we don't have to focus on what's being said, but we're really focusing in on the reaction of the people. And the episode opens up that same way where you have this sort of interesting announcement, dialogue, something going on that kind of bleeds into that scene, that opening scene at the Belarus uh, nuclear power plant station or whatever it is. Yeah, I think there's, like you said, it's intentional probably to make us feel like we were really there, you know, that we are one of these people. And by having the the loudspeakers be in English or or even with subtitles, that might distract you from like just being in the dramatic moment of these people kind of scrambling to gather their belongings and their children and, and their pets whom weren't even allowed to join them. And yeah. I think that it's this kind of weird moment where they just kind of pick up and leave. And I think we can all assume what those loudspeakers are saying, like mandatory evacuation must leave immediately, something to that effect. So it's not like we need to know what, what's being said because we get the point. And what I find interesting, though, is how people really did just drop what they were doing. And like you said, they never, they don't know they're not coming back. So it's like a city trapped or frozen in time at that one moment. And yeah. I know you mentioned in the first episode that you can come visit this city now and take a tour or whatever, but I, I imagine it's still not habitable <laughs> for any length of time. So it's probably no. still, it probably still looks somewhat the way it did at that point in time. Yeah. And I found it really fascinating after the evacuation, there's this, I believe it's like almost like a minute long set of imagery of right. the camera just quietly sitting on certain parts, the restaurants, the hotels, the hospital. Yep. It reminds us of what we see in these images today of that city frozen in time. It's very much incomplete. Right. Once full of life, all removed, both yeah. literally and figuratively. You know, it's gone. Yeah. Interesting piece of trivia here. The scene in the hospital where the nurses recognize the radioactive clothes need to be gotten rid of. The doctor apparently is putting milk on the dude because it's better than water. She's like, no, 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 we got to get rid of this clothes. That pile of clothes, Adam, is actually still there. So there is a pile of clothes from all those firemen 
that is still highly radioactive and has not been touched in 30 years, which is insane. I mean, that, this, yeah. this, this is a museum. Like, Pripyat is a museum. Or a memorial for yeah. the people. Like, that pile of clothes is, is like almost like a memorial for those that, because mm-hmm. any of those guys who were first exposed, the firefighters, the plant workers, they're not making it. They're yeah. basically doing everything they can to make them comfortable, but they're mm-hmm. not going to last more than a few weeks, uh, at least yeah. from what we're seeing, those particular characters. Now, the people in the town, I don't know. You know, It depends on where they were and how close they were and how the winds blew and all of that. But clearly, those, those workers who were being stripped down of all of their clothing, which, again, I didn't think that their clothing would be that radioactive that even touching it would make your hands essentially have radioactive burns on them. I mean, that's just insane that the clothing could pick up that much, which I guess is why they're always spraying everything down with water and scrubbing down the Jeep or the clothes or whatever. It's just they they have to get the radioactive debris or whatever it is Mm -hmm. off the the clothes and the, the uniforms. Yeah, it's an episode that I think allows us to get personal with the people, not specifically the characters or just the characters. Yes, we're getting to know Legasov. We're getting to know uh, Shabina and several others. Gorbachev comes in uh, with his (laughs) iconic birthmark. But we're also getting a sense of compassion for the people of Pripyat, the folks in the hospital. And I think that that's part of what the point of this episode is, is the fallout from the fallout. So how are people being affected? We have several scenes of patients being brought in on stretchers, burns. I mean, so it's chaos only in certain parts of the city. That's the other thing that I found really interesting is that Pripyat's a really big city. And this power plant is not like right next door to it. It's not like people are living right next to the capital city or the nuclear power plant. And this is several miles away but it shows you the enormity of what this event is doing. There's a sense of chaos that is only sort of compartmentalized in the city, where you have schools that are still got kids playing out in the playgrounds, contrasted with the the hospital being sort of the epicenter of like all the craziness that's going on. And one of the things that I connected with with the people is when I believe it's Vasily's wife is coming in to try to find him. She mm-hmm. sees some of those people that were on the bridge and how they're sick. Like that guy who says, take my daughter, take my baby. And I'm like, yes, take the baby. Please yeah. be okay. When if that baby was on the bridge, that baby's not okay. And we don't yeah. see any kind of burns or anything, but we know those people are dead. They're yeah. not going to yeah. be able to survive that because of what they didn't know. Right. And it was really heartbreaking, too, because you could tell in her expression and her actions that she almost reached for the baby. She almost was going to just take the baby. But then something inside her told her, no, you're here to find your husband. You have to find your husband. You just realize that if she took that baby, the baby was just as exposed as everybody else. So it wouldn't do anything necessarily. But yeah, this, this hospital clearly was not equipped for an emergency of this caliber. And most hospitals aren't, you know, they're not thinking about mass casualty incidents. They're thinking about a car accident or you know, smaller building fires, things like that. So to have so many people being rushed in at the same time with such specific, you know, radiation burns and, and uh, symptoms, it, it's just unfathomable. And again, we've talked about this previously, but no one thought 
that this was possible. And that's the problem. That's at the core of, no pun intended, the core of why this accident or why the aftermath was so messed up because no one had a plan because no one was planning for something that they didn't think would ever happen. So there wasn't a protocol in place. There wasn't anything set up for if this would happen. But sometimes you have to have an incident like this in order to teach people that this is possible and how to prevent it or how to deal with it if it should occur. So clearly after this incident, everything changed in the nuclear power industry in terms of safety and how to deal with something should it happen again. Yeah. And I think the closest thing that we can compare that to is 9-11, where all the security for the airports just got crazy tight. And it's been that way for 20 years now. 20 years. Yeah. That we've gotten used to. And I think for the most part, it's been okay. But now I think there's a point, and I say this very cynically, that the airports or whoever pays the TSA is getting some kind of financial kickback because of the fact that now you've created this essentially fast pass option. So you pay a hundred bucks a year and you get to go through the line quicker because you've done your background check. Logically, I get that. But I also think, hmm, prior to 9-11, this wouldn't have been necessary. You wouldn't have had this option because you didn't have huge long lines of all these checks and things like that. I'm grateful for it. I think it's necessary. I think it's better to be safe than sorry or you know do right. more you yeah. know, be overly cautious than not but at the same time you get into these habits psychologically of like oh my gosh initial panic 2001 2002 2003 and now you're in 2022 2023 or whenever you're listening to this <laughs> listener and you look at those protocols and you're like this is ridiculous why do i have to do all this all this because we're so far removed from the event that caused it we don't feel that impact as we've talked about with regard to Chernobyl, we weren't connected to it at all as Americans. The closest thing you felt was Three Mile Island, which was you know, up the road several years prior. But even that probably wasn't as close as something like your neighborhood or even 9-11. I mean, living in New York, I mean, I'm sure that had a significant impact. But me living in Arkansas, that had an impact on me psychologically. I remember sitting in my bedroom at my parents' house because I was living with them after college, like, Any great college graduate should. (laughs) And I I remember the lights were off, the TV was on, and I just didn't want to leave my room. I was like, this is awful. This is awful. This is awful. And it took me like two or three days and lots of coffee dates with friends to get out of that because I could not believe it. And now 20 plus years later, I'm looking back and I'm going, it's crazy to think that we live in a post 9-11 world, that we live in a world where Osama bin Laden is dead, mm-hmm. the one that caused it, but Al-Qaeda is still around, that we still have a threat, but it feels so distant because we've taken the precautions and this hasn't happened since. And so there's a balance as a person to be able to kind of stay on your toes, but not be so engulfed by something that you think it's going to happen to me at some point and have like the sky is falling mentality. But you're right. When an event like this happens, it calls to mind the fact that we are not our own gods. We do not have control of our lives. That the more that we embrace the things that we think we can control, the more out of control they're going to be. Nuclear power is something we cannot control. There's always a risk when you use it, when you try to control it. And I say try because we don't. It's always in a state of it'll get you. 
but we take yeah. the risk because we see value in it, at least some people do. <laughs> the right. fact that nuclear power exists tells us that someone found value and it's out there. I mean, they power submarines with this stuff. I mean, it's yes. ridiculous. You have nuclear reactors riding around the oceans of the world, you know, powering our submarines. And if one of those had a problem, I mean, it's not even, you can't even ima imagine the, the devastation, destruction. Something like 9-11 happening, the only good, I guess, one could say comes from something like that is that maybe the military and the police and the fire departments now realize something like this is possible. And so they start to plan for how do you deal with a tragedy like this if it ever happens again. Like you put together a plan that probably didn't exist previously. And also you can do things like, okay, well, let's figure out how to make our buildings stronger from potentially collapsing or how do we in this case how do we make our nuclear power plants safer and from again we don't know yet what actually caused this explosion i'm sure we're going to get some insight this episode does a really great job of teaching us as the viewer a lot about how a nuclear i mean i didn't really fully understand it so this was great dumbing down for the audience to help you as the viewer get it and i i did i was like wow I, I really learned something today. I, I really I really understand the basics of how it works now. And I get all of the things that were happening in the first episode make much more sense now. <laughs> we mentioned last time we couldn't remember the type of rock. I didn't know what it was called. You actually called it, it was graphite. And I didn't realize what that meant. Why is that so radioactive? And now we learn it's because it's sort of what they use to enclose the, the core and it's the only material that can do that, you know, and so it gets bombarded by the radiation. It's like the closest thing to it. So if that's yeah. out on the roof or out in the field or <laughs> the side of the building, then that's a big problem. Yeah, I find it very educational like you. Yeah. And that was a highlight for me is when you can explain something to me in a way that makes sense. I think that Sherbina's character in this is fantastic because he's the political guy yeah. He's the voice of who people are going to listen to. He's a voice, but he needs to be educated. And his interaction with Legasov is so, I won't call it funny, but it's entertaining. Yeah. Because he is yeah. he is so blunt about, teach me how a nuclear or reactor works. Or you'll be works. shot. <laughs> you or know? you'll be shot. He just keeps telling everyone they're, they're going to be shot if they don't do what he says. It's uh... and, then, <laughs> and then at the end of that conversation, he's like, okay. Now I know how a nuclear reactor works. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and, it's so funny. and it's even better when they finally land and start questioning the the guys, and I forget their names, but the two main guys that ran the plant, that he doesn't quite buy it, and he starts to use the knowledge he just learned uh, about nuclear power plants. And I, I felt like they had a little bit of a bonding moment there with like, oh, look, you were paying attention. You were listening to me. Paying so, attention in class is what you yeah. <laughs> And he's a quick learner. Like he, he actually got it. He, he wasn't just saying, now I know. Like he really understood enough. He's not a dumb guy. This just isn't his field. And he well, does and mention with, knowing concrete, which makes me think he's maybe he was involved in building or construction or something. Well, I think it speaks to the fact that he probably like the minister that, um, that Kumaluk, Kumuk. Uh, Ulana, the scientist, the Belarus yes. scientist, yep. she visits in Minsk, I believe. She makes a comment, you used to work in a shoe factory. 
and now right. you're here. And I think that's something else that's sort of on display is this lack of respect or a misconstrued understanding of the importance of science and scientists. Mm -hmm. And this episode, I think, brings these two types of people together where you yes. have political voices and scientific voices that are trying to work together. And there are conflicts because of the value that one has over the other. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at Sherbina, Legasov's information that he gives to Brukhanov and Formin in that scene that you're talking about. Right. It's interesting. Formin asks him, or Brukhanov asks him, how do you know that the core exploded? This is the same mm -hmm. question that one of the other guys who was sort of a, a political denier, he was like, uh, the core exploded. They asked him the same question and he couldn't answer it. I love how Legasov answers it. He said, I'm not inclined to explain it right now. And of course, they say the same thing, like, oh, of course you can't explain it because it didn't. It didn't explode. But Sherbina coming in with that new information almost validates Legasov's perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like you have this endorsement from a political representative on behalf of the scientists. Right. And it, it speaks to the fact that what we saw in the first episode Political voices are loud and people hear them. Right. They're not going to hear science. Uh, I think it's the minister in Minsk said, where are you guys when someone gets sick? Oh, you just got your nose in your books. There's clearly a disrespect or a lack of respect for the scientific community because problems don't get solved with scientists. They just point them out from that perspective. Right. And so as we navigate through this episode, we see... Legasov and Ulana really provide the information, provide solutions. There's this great scene where they're all sitting down with Gorbachev and Legasov is basically saying, everything's going to crap. Here's what's going to happen. And he throws out like the crazy like apocalypse. This is essentially what's going to happen. But then he goes, but I think we have a solution. <laughs> and right. I was so glad he said that because this would just reinforce what scientists do. They just tell you that there's a problem. They're fine to give scientific explanations from a politician's point of view, but they don't provide the solution. And I think this is where we find that sense of unity or at least a little bit of common ground where the scientists are not just speaking science-ease. They're actually trying to provide a solution to a problem, but they have to understand what the problem is first. And it comes from or it starts with stopping the denial of what has actually happened. And that just continues in this episode. After that scene where they're all talking, after the, the helicopter lands, and Sherbina validates Legasov, I love it because Brikhanov looks at Formin and he says, okay, yeah, you're basically fired. And what does Formin say? He says, Dyatlov was in charge. Even then, he's like, I can't take the blame. I'm not going to be blamed for this. And he's just yeah. living in this denial. Like, if I can't deny that the core has exploded, I'm going to deny that it's my fault, or at least that I'm culpable to it. All this stuff's on full display, and it's just, it's one of the things that made this episode just really, really intriguing for me, because we get more of what we saw in the first episode, but we get an expansion of these relationships between science and politicians that I think was very real. I'd like to yeah. believe that it was real in this Russian culture where you had the politicians speak and everybody listens, and what they say is truth, even if it's not. Yeah, and I think that singular referring to i think he says uh, take them to the local party headquarters i don't think that's going to be a pleasant 
location for them. I don't think they're just fired. I think there's a lot more in store for them. They've probably been exposed to the radiation. I don't know how much. I don't know because they were probably in that bunker for part of this time. But I think they're either going to be imprisoned or killed (laughs) because, in my opinion, even though they weren't responsible for the accident, and again, we don't know who was, they are responsible for how they reacted to it, how they didn't actually listen or take into account the possibility that the worst case scenario could have occurred. That's what they are culpable for and should be held accountable for because they were the first people to have power to actually say, we need to evacuate. We have to do something right now because this could be the worst case scenario. And it sort of goes back to that old scientific idea of uh, Occam's razor, where it's like the simplest solution might be what it is, which in this case is that the core is exposed and everyone is throwing up and burned because of a major incident. Let's just accept that. And if we're wrong, well, no harm, no foul. You know, let's just get people out of here now. Let's stop playing this game of everything's okay or blaming other people and just take action. They weren't doing anything. They were literally just standing around. I mean, they're like, oh, we have the whole situation under control. In what sense? Okay, you're taking some people off to the hospital or taking them to Moscow to be treated. Okay, but what about this fire that's just burning uncontrolled? What are you doing? You know, <laughs> it's so anyway, I, I was kind of happy to see that they were held accountable and I liked how it happened. It was a, it, it was a little satisfying <laughs> after seeing how they behaved in the previous yeah. episode. For sure. And that level of accountability, I think, is really sort of made more complex where you have somebody like Fermin, who represents the it's not my fault and I'm the short sighted guy. Like, I'm just like, Mm -hmm. look, I'm just doing what I was told. I'm just providing the safety training or whatever it is. And, you know, you executed it. So it's your fault. What I find interesting is that someone like Sherbina is for me, it was initially for me like, oh yeah, he's the political guy. He's just going to, he wants to sound smart. He wants to sound like he's in charge. And originally, initially he does where uh, that first meeting with Gorbachev, he says the situation in Chernobyl is stable. And I'm like, liar, you don't know anything. And it's at that point, Legasov is forced to clarify that things aren't okay. He pounds on that table, passionate. He's like, we've got, you got to listen to me. I think it's Trevina who says to stop being an alarmist. And he says, It's not an alarmist if it's a fact. Right. And Gorbachev basically says, calm down. If we're going to hear you, if we're going to hear what you have to say, you've got to scale this back. And I I love that Legasov said, I'm sorry. Can I start over and can I explain? And so from there, when I watch him and Sherbina, it's interesting to see how I start to believe that Sherbina's relationship, his motive isn't just to be a political, like, look at me, I'm the smart guy. He really wants to be a part of the solution. Now, it's royally stupid to go flying to Chernobyl in a helicopter. And if I'm Legasov, who knows better, I'm like, why are you volunteering? Why are you saying yes? I don't think he knows. I think he's been told by the party officials in Chernobyl that it's safe, that it's okay, that it's only 3.6 Rotgens or whatever whatever the word is. Um, I call them ramekins for some reason, like little, <laughs> little glass cups yeah. that you have. Just call them ramekins. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, I'm wondering if he actually doesn't know that it's as bad as it is 
and that maybe he's not really lying or that he's just towing the party line. He's he's being the mouthpiece for what he's been told from the people on the ground because they're not acting like it's anything severe. Are you talking about Cherbina or Legasov? I'm talking about Stellan Skarsgård's character. Who Trebina. Is the Trebina. No, yeah. Absolutely agree with that. What, yeah. what my, I was asking about is Legasov is fine to go with him. And I'm like, dude, you're literally flying in to death. No. I, and I think he knows that. Uh, I think he knows right then and there that it's going to be horrible for him and his health. But he knows that he has no choice. He raised his hand and or pounded his fist, as you said, and said, no. This is worse than it is. And I think he knew right then and there that he was going to be ordered to do whatever they needed him to do. Like, there was no saying no at that point. He was in it. If he didn't want to get involved, he shouldn't have said anything. But thank goodness he did, because I don't know if anyone else would have at this point. I don't know if anyone else in that room would have said anything or done anything. And what else could have occurred? You know, how much worse could this incident have been? Well, that brings me to another point that I found great about this episode. And that's this sense of sacrifice and community Mm -hmm. that we see in so many places and surprising places too. I didn't doubt that Legasov was going to not go because of his passion. Yes, I thought at the moment, I'm like, (laughs) that's probably not a good idea for you to go. But I think he knew based off where they were that he was already exposed to it. And getting right. closer to it, I think there wasn't going to be any loss from him. Maybe he lives you know, less than five years as opposed to five years. But he knew that it was something that needed to happen because he had information that needed to be shared. What I was surprised about was other political figures, military figures, and workers that saw what they needed to do as an opportunity to sacrifice and to really do something for the community for the sake of maintaining this unity. Sherbina, I think is a great example. And that's for me, as the episode rolls on, I saw him as someone who wanted to learn, wasn't just in it for a political angle, who really wanted to be a problem solver. I also saw it with the military guy who validated what the actual radiation. Right. He drove the truck in with the high capacity decimeter as close as he could and it turned out to be like 15,000 versus the 3.6 yeah, that they were <laughs> saying yeah. that it was you know? 15,000 Ronkins, I think is the yeah. official and yeah, that Ronkins. meant that the core was open it's twice the radiation of Hiroshima every hour right like and going back to what you talked about about being educated I mean I got such an expansion of the catastrophic nature of this this was bad right. Like just being in the area, it's not like if you're going to be exposed, it's how much are you going to have a thyroid at the end of this? This is just like, what is going on? And so having him willing to go in and then come back and get hosed, hosed down. And then by the end of the episode, those three individual workers who chose to go in to the water and basically drain the tanks, Uh, by the way, those three did not die within five years. They actually, I don't know if two of them are still alive. One of them passed away, I think from cancer or some heart Mm. attack or something in 2005. But I think the other two are still alive. Like they lived a long time after this. And they, I hope they have been honored in some way in the country. 
we don't see what happens next. We only kind of see the beginning of their journey into darkness underneath the plant. But I would assume that they are successful in preventing this explosion from occurring. And again, I didn't realize this at all. I didn't realize that if that explosion would have occurred, it would have affected basically almost all of Eastern Europe and Western Russia or Soviet Union. It it would have been a massive, not just destruction, but it would have destroyed the water and food supply. It would have prevented babies from being born healthy. So many things would happen for 100 plus years. So those three guys really did sacrifice so much. I mean, I did not know that they were alive, but that's that's amazing. I, I don't know how they yeah. survived this, but they did their best to kind of put them in suits and everything. But still, when you're going in that close to the core, I, you would think that there's just no... I, I think they say in the episode that they're not going to live more than a week. That's the sacrifice. Yeah. Three men for... And they even asked Gorbachev in that boardroom meeting, they say, you know, we, we're asking your permission to kill three men to save yeah. millions. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, and I think that Sherbina's speech that he gives to the men before those three volunteer is so poignant mm-hmm. because it speaks to the loyalty of being a citizen of the Soviet Union. I was reminded of Gladiator and <laughs> this idea of being a citizen of Rome, like the Apostle Paul had this metaphorical card. Like if you're a citizen of Rome, you have stature. And I think that that same thing plays out in Gladiator. The same thing here. I mean, if you're a citizen of the Soviet Union, whether you want it or not, there's a sense of pride that is thrust on you that you're a Soviet Union citizen. Right. And I think Gorbachev says there's a duty that comes with that. Yeah. Yes. Like you are, you're meant to sacrifice for the greater good. It's a socialist kind of idea where you have what's best for the people. And on paper, that sounds really good. We won't get into the politics of all that, but the idea of sacrificing for the greater good of the people that you are essentially serving as a citizen is on full display here. Right. And he says, go into that water because it must be done. Right. And he says, you're the only ones that can do it. And that's true. The men in that room were the only ones that knew the plant and knew what had to be done and could do it. So- if they didn't get three volunteers from that room, they were screwed, you know, they, yeah. unless they forced them to do it. But, you know, it's kind of hard to force someone to go do something like that. So, yeah, that last scene was really, really amazing for a number of reasons. One that, it, you know, leaves you on a cliffhanger, the Geiger or the, the Ramekin or whatever we're calling it. The, the decimeter. Yeah. The decimeter is going, it's going crazy. You can hear yeah. it just getting, you know, more vibratory or whatever and even yeah. the the suits that they're wearing they can't talk to each other it's not like mm-hmm. they have a shield where they're like you know this is so and so and you know coming in they're like whoa, whoa, whoa. i mean they're they're literally like using hand signals and like pointing and i mean the claustrophobia of mm-hmm. that scene just makes it more intense and one of the special features after the episode that they talk about in the special features is the cinematographer didn't want to light it in a way that we've talked about on past episodes where you have this ambient light that shows like, oh yeah, like in Stranger Things where, you know, if you're in a tunnel and you're like, can they really see or is it being lit? Or is it really, is that just for our, you know, benefit or like, Mm -hmm. what does it look like for the, for the character in the scene? Not. And that's, and that's what's, yeah. yeah, that's what's going on here is the character 
they wanted us to see from the vantage point of the characters. So when right. a flashlight flashes on the water, what they see is what That's we what see. And see. I thought that yeah. was so that was so great. Yeah. Cuz it's dark. I mean, it feels like a horror movie because everything bad is happening at night. Like True. all the yeah. stuff. It's like all the action and things are taking place at night or in a tunnel where it's really dark. Nothing's happy in the daytime for sure cuz it's all bad news. But it's almost as if they're like, we need to, yeah, we want all the action, all the craziness to take place in the dark because we want the weight of all this to be really felt by our audience. Right. You know, two other thoughts on that scene. <laughs> One, why do they even bother giving them that decimeter that's going crazy? Because that's just going <laughs> to freak them out. Like, yes. you know, you're going near the radiation and it's going to be probably deadly levels. So just don't worry about it and do your job. Like, don't stress about that thing going crazy. And two, they don't really even have real radiation suits. Like, I mean, they seem to be rigging up this whole setup for them. I mean, even in Back to the Future, Doc Brown had radiation suits when he's putting the plutonium in the in the DeLorean. Like, why don't they have real high quality radiation suits to give these workers and firemen and every? It's like no planning, no belief that this was even necessary. They just didn't have it. And I find that crazy. I, I just insane. Anyway, they did a really good job <laughs> with this episode. Well, I think all that stuff just sort of reinforces this reality of the Soviet Union that they, they were a powerhouse in terms of having nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. But this accident if it got out, which it was getting out, I think yeah. it was. Um, I think it satellite was, uh, imagery. Yeah, satellite imagery from the Americans. Germany was feeling it. Uh, some of the some of the effects. Sweden, I think. So it's not like it was a a, a quiet kind of incident. No. If any no. if any news came out, it would ruin them. And I think I want to say historically, this event led to the eventual downfall of the Soviet Union because the perception of their power. I think Gorbachev says, our power is in the perception of our power, right. which I thought was a fantastic line. And I think that in and of itself is what made them who they were. Right. It was all so secretive. Like we in America were essentially broadcasting who we were through our music and through our movies and our TV shows. And we were not hiding what we were and who we were. But the Soviet Union was somewhat of a mystery. You know, we didn't really understand what was happening over there or whatever we were getting was very controlled. As we said, it was all very specific, the information that was being released to the world. So this suddenly changed that narrative. And what's interesting about this episode, this is the episode where, where the as you said, the world is starting to learn about this incident. What they know is, you know, a whole other factor, but in Matthew Modine's Full Metal Jacket Diary, he actually has a, which again is something I worked with him on, as you know, and in this diary when he was filming Full Metal Jacket in England, it was in 1985 and 1986. And one of the sections of his diary is when he hears on the news about the Chernobyl incident. Oh, wow. And he writes about how scary this is because his wife had just given birth to their son about six months earlier, and they're talking about how the radiation in the air might affect mother's breast milk. That's what they're saying on the news, even in as far west as England. So here he is filming Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, and you know he has the additional stress now of this radiation in the air, 
and also the fact that he's bringing a child into a world where something like this is happening. So it's not a long section of his diary, but it definitely places, and it's actually what he wrote, you know, at that time. So it's not like him looking back on it and remembering it. Oh, yeah, that was really scary. Like these are his thoughts before he knew too much about what actually happened. It's like a real kind of time capsule of what someone was feeling at that point. I think through watching this and the, and what I was getting to with regard to the the costumes and and the questions that that you and I have about man did they not have this I don't believe that the Soviet Union was stupid I don't think that the leadership right. was dumb I mean obviously even if it was a perception it was a brilliant perception to keep them as a superpower for years and years and years right against the US as part of the Cold War but the fact is the Soviet Union is a poor nation you know, Pripyat was actually kind of the, it was a nice city. It was one of the more kind of developed cities, but other cities around it were still limited on food and resources and things like that. And that was kind of the status quo when mm-hmm. it came to Russian culture is you didn't have the best of everything. You only had one kind of firefighter's outfit. It wasn't like you had different suits. You had the one. And the uh, and the creator, writer, really wanted to make sure for authenticity's sake to show that. Not to show that Russia was poor, but to show that it wasn't necessarily a developed nation, a developed entity. And I think that when you see these guys in the water with these makeshift suits, it was just a product of the culture and a right. lack of understanding. And I think my, my theory, if I have a theory, is that you're not listening to scientists tell you you need to take more precautions. Doctors, we have that from the first episode. The doctor's like, why do you need iodine pills? What do you need that right. for? They just didn't know. And also maybe not only did they not know, but maybe, as you said, if resources and money were an issue, it might just be, we're not going to spend money on stuff that we're never going to need. And if that's right. kind of, you know, again, that's the mentality. We're never going to need this. So why would we spend money on a stockpile of iodine pills in the hospital? Who's going to need that? What's the chance that we're going to need that? There's other things we need to be spending our money, our resources and labor on. And I think that's maybe more likely the situation here. Like so many things, if you don't think something's possible, why waste the money with preventive measures, right? Right. It's uh, it's more of deal with the problem after it happens, like if it happens, we'll deal with it, but we're not going to plan for it. You know, we're not going right. to think ahead. Yeah. Well, that's that's about all that I have for this. Just a, a couple of thoughts that kind of came across my brain. I love the quick scene with the uh, the Belarus scientist, and I think it was another scientist in Minsk or someplace else talking in code. Right, where they were right, like, on the phone. How's the yeah. weather? Yeah, it's hot. Uh, it's about to, and to translate all that, like, oh yeah, they're 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 dropping boron and sand in the uh, on the fire, and I think it's going to help. But whatever, like, what? Did you just use code? That's amazing. And they um, must have done but, this before, right? I mean, they, it seems to me that like you can't just come up with this code coded system. And this might stem from the fact that they're living as scientists in the Soviet Union. They know that they're being monitored, that, that they're being listened to, and they have to be extra careful about what they talk about and who they say it to and where they say it. So it might be a, kind of a like a system that more than just the two of them use <laughs> to get information around mm-hmm. quickly and without you know raising any red flags. Yeah. 
that message at the end of episode two that we talked about that was all in Russian, mm-hmm. they didn't have the subtitles, just like the first episode, the 911 call, that was the actual recording that was broadcast at there you that go. time. Yeah. So, so it's, it it's, really was it, to make us feel like we were there. It's kind of this weird hybrid approach to dramatizing the event, but also giving you a little bit of the sort of documentary aspect of it. Kind of this is, mm-hmm. you know, we're giving you a little bit of the real audio here as well. Yeah. Any thoughts from you before we wrap up? Uh, no, I just think that this does a really good job of showing the differences between the scientific community in the Soviet Union and the political community. I mean, we have two sort of conflicting types of people, really. People that want to be politicians, I would say anywhere for the most part, are somewhat selfish. They're focused on themselves, their rise to power, whether it's for status or wealth or just influence. That's something that their personality type is drawn towards. And I think many scientists are more focused on sort of not themselves, but they're focused on things that are bigger than them. That in their minds, like if doctors or scientists are trying to cure cancer, they're doing it because they believe in that cause, right? That we got to cure cancer. And so everything they're doing is for that purpose. And it might make them very narrow-minded at times, right? Very laser-focused. But their personality type, I think, tends to be more about the science or the issue at hand and less about themselves. So I think that's maybe why there's this clash their performances were terrific, both Stellan Skarsgård and Jared Harris. The way that that relationship evolved just through this one episode, and I'm sure yeah. will continue to evolve, really is what drew me to this episode the most. I, I like how towards the end, Stellan, as an actor, he's so good with just his facial expressions. And you could tell he kind of had this, what they call in the military, this thousand-yard stare, where he was almost like realizing, I'm not going to live more than five years. I'm in it now. Like, there's no coming back from this. And I think that reality is starting to sink in for him. Now, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if he really died within five years in real life. But I think he, as as an actor, is emoting that reality. He's clearly changed drastically from that first boardroom meeting with Gorbachev, where he was all confident and he knew exactly what was going on, nothing to worry about. But now that he's on the ground and he's been exposed, he's essentially a different person. And it happened very quickly. And I think part of that is the common ground that they both have. Right. Not the common ground that's radioactive, but the common ground metaphorically that they're both in this. Knowing that they have a finite lifespan, potentially, even if it is five years, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, five years is not 25 years, but five years is not five days. Right. And they're older gentlemen, so I don't know if sure. they're as old as the actors playing them in in, <laughs> in real life at this point in time. But five years, when you're 70 or 75, you've lived a good long life. You may have not lived that much longer anyway. So these are older actors, and uh, but the, the real life individuals might have been younger for all we know. So yeah. it's just fascinating to see, especially I think they're in the hotel room at one point just talking about the dilemma that they're in. And you can see that they're essentially in this together now. They know that it's really up to them. There's nobody else there on the ground that worked at the facility that's going to help them. They have themselves and anyone that they pull into this endeavor, which makes me wonder why. Why wasn't 
the Soviet government at that point pulling together like the top minds in engineering and science and everything to kind of combat this potential catastrophic explosion from happening. Like, why is it just these two men, you know, and then eventually a third who joins them? What is the reason for that? It's this kind of weird hubris of the Soviet Union that we can't talk about the problem or we can't acknowledge the problem. Like if they just acknowledge it and ask for help, if they were smart, they would say, hello, America, we're going to have most of Europe exposed to radiation if we don't figure out a way to solve this problem. Can you help us? Can you send some scientists over and work with us? Like this is a bigger, this is a global issue now. We need to get over our egos and actually solve the problem. But Gorbachev seemed like a waste of space the way he was portrayed. He just kind of exits the room at the end of this episode, not the end, but of that scene and just kind of walks out of like, where's he going? What's he going to do? It's like he needs to do something. He needs to actually be a part of the solution. But he's just depending on this group of people at this table to figure it out. And I think when we watch that play out, particularly with him, I think he represents an establishment that is in denial and Mm -hmm. doesn't have the answers and isn't proactively thinking and is really more concerned or as concerned about a perceptive reputation as they are about the safety of their people. I think that's what he means in part when he says that the perception of our power is our power. Our power comes from the perception of our power. And if that's what's driving you, I think it was so, I think his facial expression when the Belarusian scientist was explaining the essential like catastrophe that was coming. Right. I think that revealed the seriousness of it. And I think he was just as a political figure, as a human being, just like, I don't have the answers. And Uh, yeah, I don't know that he was trying to hand them off, but this is water that he has not swam in. I mean, this is not something that he had ever been used to. I don't think he was a puppet. I don't think anything like that. I don't know. But he wasn't willing to, reach out to other countries in the European community and tell them what was happening or ask for help or Mm -hmm. say, we're in over our heads here. We need to figure this out as a world so we don't have a nuclear disaster here. No, he wasn't going to do that. All he cared about, as you said, was that they maintained their perception of power. And that was more important to him and all of the ruling individuals within the Soviet Union. That was more important than if the plant actually exploded, if that four megaton explosion occurred. Well, there wouldn't be a country or a nation to take pride in. That, well, exactly. That yeah, that, exactly. As they, as they said, 60 million people would be affected instantly and many, many more from the fallout. I mean, that's absolutely insane. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Again, so it just shows sort of a lack of leadership and, and a lack of an ability to not only acknowledge the problem, but to seek help when necessary, to know when it's okay to realize that you're in a pickle and you, you need some help here anyway. Yeah. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode of an original series. Adam, what is coming up? Well, episode three of five entitled Open Wide, O Earth. And this is, again, directed by uh, Johan Rank and written by Craig Mazin. Is it Mazin? Is that how you say it? It's, I think it's Mazin, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. He is amazing. Yeah, he's amazing, yeah. That's, that's a, amazing. That's a good that's a name to have. And a writer. Yeah. <laughs> he's Craig Amazin. Yeah. 
<laughs> That's the laugh we can get in this episode right there. There you go. <laughs> yeah, this is a harder one to, to kind of have fun with and kind of make jokes about. I'll just fall back on Peter Jennings' pronunciation. There you go. Chernobyl that was pretty funny. Yeah. And radiation. <laughs> yeah. And who knows how many people, who knows how many people in America pronounced it incorrectly because of him. I would imagine. He's to blame. Asked, he's, <laughs> there you go, Adam, blaming somebody else. <laughs> it's all his like fault. people here. I used to say radiation all the time, and now I know why. <laughs> <laughs> blaming Peter Jennings. Well, thank you for tuning in and joining our conversation. I'm Patch. He's Adam. And we are out of here.